this is your first time with us, thank you for joining us. Thanks for being with us. I'd love to meet you after service. Get a t-shirt. You can get a free Bible for being your first time. I know it's easy to get wrapped up in the semester. Things are getting heavy, so it's easy not to try new things. So thank you for trying something new tonight. Our prayer is that you'll feel at home here at Chi Alpha. When I was a senior in high school, my friends and I coached a fifth grade flag football team. I'll be honest, I was not coaching this team to help these kids learn and get better. I wanted to win. So we did whatever, that, whatever it took to win. See, youth flag football, if you know anything about it, it's supposed to be about equal playing time. You're supposed to learn how to play the game, like good fundamentals and just being kind to each other and having fun. I was not interested in that whatsoever when I signed up to coach. So I did two things that I probably should not have done as a coach of fifth graders. First of all, we had what I'm going to call a fourth quarter team. So when you are in youth sports, the kids are supposed to have equal playing time. So our team was so big that there's two groups. So one group would usually play the first half of the game. The other group would play the second half of the game, to be fair. But see, here's a problem with that. The two groups have to be like equal talent because or else you're going to just get smacked in one of the halves. Then you'll lose the game. So you have to divide the talent up a little bit. But when the fourth quarter comes, the end of the game, you want your best players in the field, right? You want to win, especially if it's close. So I created our fourth quarter team with the best fifth graders, and the fifth graders that did not have the goods to play went straight to the bench during the fourth quarter. See, technically, there was no rule saying I couldn't do this, but the parents and the other teams didn't love that some kids got to play more than others. Now you guys are all looking at me like I'm a jerk, okay? I was 18. Leave me alone. Okay, I had to try to get my competitive edge out somewhere. But this was not the worst thing that we did as coaches. So flag football is obviously not tackle football, right? Like when you play football, like you tackle someone. Flag football, you're grabbing little things in their side. You're supposed to avoid conflict. Technically, though, the rules didn't say anything about the conflict. So we told our guys, all right, if you can't grab their flags, they're getting passed in, they're too fast, just lay them out. Don't let them score at all costs. You're all looking at me like I'm such, so evil, Okay. <laughs> We taught the fifth graders to win at all costs, if, even if that meant hitting the other team. See, I think the league assumed that the adult coaches would be mature enough not to tell the fifth graders to tackle each other, so they didn't think it'd be necessary to have a rule in place. But they were wrong. And in case you were wondering, we only lost one game that season, and we tied for first place. Thank you very much. Amen? Amen. I've said some really weird stuff up here, and I feel like this is the most judged I've ever been. And I've said a lot worse stuff, so I don't know what's going on. Anyways, many of us are like I was as a coach. We technically follow the rules. We do whatever we technically can to stay in the lines. We don't cross the line, but we get as close to the edge as possible. This is especially true in regards to sexuality. We look to culture and we figure out what is socially acceptable. What can I do that's not a big sin or a big issue? See, we think, I'm not going to have sex with my significant other. That's a big deal. But we get as close as possible. Or we think, I'm not going to be addicted to pornography. Like, I'm not going to watch it every day, but it's like twice a week's okay. We get as close to the edge. We don't technically break rules, we think. But we push our boundaries as far as they can go. And this is setting ourselves up for failure. Tonight, we're in part three of our series, It's a Love Story. This whole series has been based off a book entitled Loveology by John Mark Comer. 
And week one, we started with our once upon a time where we set the foundation for our love story, and that is waiting patiently. We must wait patiently. We must wait well if we want all that God has for us in regards to romance. Last week, we talked about our rising action, which is dating, and the four marks of a healthy dating relationship. Who remembers them? Nice. (laughs) Do we have them up there, mark number one? I think we do. Maybe not. Mark one's the, oh, come on, somebody. Mark one's the chase. Mark two, the line. Mark three, the friends. Mark four, the journey to the day. So the men, you got to get off your rear and chase them. Come on, somebody. We also have to have good lines, meaning boundaries. We'll talk more about that tonight. I know we're pumped. We need to let friends into our relationships if we want to date well. And when we're dating, we need to date with the end in mind at all times. Every relationship should either be going closer to or farther away from marriage. And our series has been building up to tonight. We felt this tension building, the energy rising throughout this series. After our once upon a time, again, think about a plot diagram. We've got our once upon a time. Then we built the tension with the rising action. And tonight, we get to the climax of our love story. The climax, obviously, being sex. Come on, that's funny. That's good. Thank you, Leonard. Amen. You guys all gave me the same look Taylor did when I told her I was going to call my sex series The Climax. (laughs) We're in for a long night, folks. All right, there goes my stupid jokes. Let's get serious now. We got to talk about sex. Come on, be an adult. (laughs) Uh, We're going to have fun. If you have your Bibles, open that up. We're going to be in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is in the Old Testament. I don't usually preach out of the Old Testament. It means in the first half of the Bible. It's the seventh book of the Bible. So open up to the beginning, skip a little bit, and you'll get to the book of Judges. We'll be in Judges 14 if you want to turn there. But before we tell a story, I want to give us some background information. Tonight we're going to be reading about a guy named Samson. Samson had a special calling over his life from the time that he was in his mother's womb. While he was in his mother's womb, God said to him, you are going to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite is someone who is just dedicated to God. They're set apart for use by God. They were special to God. And these Nazarites had to follow three rules. Rule number one, they could not cut their hair. I wish I had to follow that rule. I would love to have long hair, but Taylor, my wife, won't let me. So anyways, that's something I'm praying for. Anyways, the second rule is they're not allowed to drink wine. And then they get to the third rule, which is they are not allowed to touch a dead body. So again, no cutting your hair, no brewskis on the weekends, no touching dead bodies. Even like when their parents died, they weren't allowed to go to the funerals. They took this pretty seriously. God took this very seriously, this vow that people make. And Samson was a very unique person. He was a very unique Nazarite because most people, when they took this Nazarite vow, they took it for like two years. It wasn't like you're a lifetime going to follow these rules. They say for two years or a year, six months, dedicate yourself to God and don't do those three things. But Samson was born this way. God places on him in the womb. So he had a very special calling in his life. However, looking at Samson's story, he did not do a great job of staying pure before the Lord. Samson starts his story. So again, he's supposed to be like a hero for his people, for his country. And he starts by going and falling in love with one of the enemy girls. He's supposed to be destroying his enemy and instead he's flirting with them. So that's how he starts. Then we get to the story we're going to read tonight. Samson's on his way back from this newfound lady. He's feeling great. He's about to bring his parents to go meet her. And we're going to pick up right there. This is Judges 14, 5 through 9. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. (laughs) Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. 
I wish I could do that. <laughs> Lion coming and just rip it in shreds. Yeah. Anyways, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Side note, if I ripped a lion to shreds, I'm telling everybody. I'm going like, you know, I, I killed a lion. I killed a lion. I killed a lion. I'm going to tell everyone. But Samson doesn't do that. Then he went down and talked with this new woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes, which means he thought she was cute. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So he's walking back the path that he just walked where he killed this lion a few days later, and he sees this lion. And behold, there's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went, came to his father and mother. He gave them some honey, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he'd scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, I pray for you tonight, God. I pray that you show up in this place, that we can all encounter your love tonight, God. I pray that you'll speak through the message and to speak to our hearts about what your ideal design is for our sexuality. We love you so much, King Jesus. Amen. All right, here's our main idea for the tonight. We must trust the creator of sex over the creation that is sex. Let's say that again. It's a little confusing. We must trust the creator of sex over the creation that is sex. We must trust the creator over the creation. You might be rightfully asking yourself this question. What does killing a lion and eating some honey have to do with my sex life? It's a fair question but it has everything to do with your sex life. Come on. <laughs> we have to remember that Samson was a Nazarite. That was a good thing. He was set apart for use by God. God had a special calling for him. He had incredible plans, and God wanted to use Samson to do incredible things. His creator loved him dearly. However, in this love, he did give him some parameters and say, don't do these things because I've set you apart. One of these things was not to touch dead things. It's because he wants to be pure before God. And if you touch something dead in old Jewish times, in this time, you become ceremonially unclean. So God wanted Samson to stay clean. So he said, don't touch that dead body. Samson's sly, though. As he's passing the dead lion's carcass, he knows, I can't touch that lion. I'm not allowed to touch that body. But I want the honey. So he thinks to himself, how can I get what I want, but also listen to God? How can I get the honey without technically breaking the rules that God has given me? He's like, I got this. I'm about to be super careful. He like tiptoes up. He's like, what's up, lion? He contorts his arm a little bit. He gets in there. He gets some honey, scoops it out, like wiggles away a little bit, and he's all good. He got it. He gets what he wants without technically breaking the rules. We do this all the time with our sex lives. But before we jump in, we need to realize something. Sex is good. Amen? I mean, I've got a little clap. Thank you. You can tell she's getting married soon. It's good. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry, Forrest. Anyways, <laughs> uh, sex is a good gift from God. Sex is good when we do it in the context that God created to be done in. Just like the Nazarite vow that was given to Samson, which was good, sex is a good gift God has given us. God's first command to humanity in regards to sex was not a negative one. What I mean by that, his first command was not, don't do that, or don't do this, avoid that sin. That's not the first thing that God tells us in regards to sex. The first thing that he tells us is to be fruitful and multiply, baby. He says, let's get it on, it's time. He's excited, God loves sex. Too often in church world, we just focus on the negatives. Don't watch porn. Don't make out. Don't have sex before marriage. 
those are all true. Those are all good commands. Hear me, we should not do those things. But when God created sex, he created it as a positive thing. Sex is not supposed to be something that brings us guilt or shame, but instead it's supposed to bring us joy. Imagine, think about your sexual history, and imagine if you had nothing to hide. You had nothing to feel shame about. That would be pretty cool. The first two humans, Adam and Eve, they had sex before they ever sinned. Let's hear that. Before there was ever sin in the world, there was sex. We were sexual before we were sinful. In the right context, sex is a great gift. The problem started happening when we chose the creation over the creator. Eve decided that she wanted the fruit that God had created more than God himself. She decided she wanted the creation more than God. This set us down a trajectory of choosing God's creation over him. Sex was meant to be a good gift to enjoy, but instead we turned it into a God that we bow to. We have turned sex into our God. And this God is very hard to satisfy. What was supposed to be life-giving and joyful for us has turned into a power that dominates us, pulls us into addiction, and breathes shame into our lives. John Mark Comer, the author of the book I talk about, says this happens when sex is your God. When sex is your God, you have to download porn. You have to jack off. You have to sleep with your boyfriend. You have to let him touch you. You have to give into your body's cravings, even if you know it's going to steal from your future. You have no choice because you're a slave. We like to define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. But to Jesus, that's not freedom. That's slavery. Freedom, at least in Jesus' mind, is the ability to do whatever you should. To enjoy the world as God intended. See, we think that having no boundaries in our life, that's the key to freedom. Don't give me any rules. Don't give me any restrictions. I want to do what I want. When in actuality, this enslaves us more than anything because sex controls us. It has power over us. Sex outside of the context of marriage is anything but freeing. See, we have to trust our creator. We need to trust that God knows best in regards to our sex lives. This is the foundation of our discussion, that God is good, that God has good intentions for each and one of us. That God is not out to steal our fun, but he knows that sex outside of the context he created it to be in is dangerous and controlling. Sex is very powerful. It connects people on a deep level and does things to us. God knows that sex in the wrong context will dominate us. It will bring us pain. And we need to trust that God might know more than you or I do in regards to what it looks like to have a healthy sex life. If we don't trust our creator, we will try to trust his creation. We think sex is going to satisfy. We think, finally, if I sleep with him or her, then I'll be happy. I know a lot of you are engaged, and you're thinking, when I just get to do it on my wedding night, ah, life's going to be so good. We think that's going to bring us happiness. Maybe you think, when I get my next porn fixed, then I'll be free. This controls your thought life, right? These thoughts dominate us. When in actuality, not only will sex enslave you, it will let you down. Sex never lives up to the hype. The creation is not as good as the creator. Hear me. Sex is fun. I'm married, so I'm allowed to say that. But it's not everything. It's only satisfying in the context that God created it to be in. Let's go back to Samson. Samson got as close to touching the lion as possible. 
This was a pattern in Samson's life. He would do just enough to please his role, to follow the Nazarite vow. Sometimes he'd actually go over the line, and eventually he loses the power from God. He loses his anointing from God because of his sexual relationship with a girl named Delilah. That's his demise. He set himself for, up for failure early in his life because he was willing to tiptoe around the rules instead of trusting that God knew best. So God's best for Samson was not touching that dead body. What is God's best for us in regards to our sex lives? In the church world, we are constantly told, don't have sex before marriage. That's all you're told, right? Don't have sex before marriage, which I fully agree with. Hear me. However, I've learned something the last few years as I've started reading through the Bible every single year. The Bible actually never says, thou shalt not have sex before marriage. The Bible never says, don't have sex before marriage. It's not in there anywhere. I'm like, hold up. This is what my pastors all told me. It's not in there. What it actually says, though, is found in Matthew chapter 5. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples, on what it looks like to, to be a member of his kingdom, what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. He says, if you want to follow me, this is what you should do. And in verses 27 through 28, he gets to what a healthy sex life looks like when you're following him. Matthew 5, 27 through 28 says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. One of the 10 commandments, the top things God tells us to obey is to not commit adultery. So one of the big rules is you can't sleep with your neighbor's wife. You cannot cheat on your spouse. That's what adultery is. And then Jesus takes that and he ups the ante. He says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery already and you've sinned. Jesus is telling us that adultery is not just sleeping with someone who's not our spouse. He's saying adultery is lust. The book of Matthew, where we just read out of, was written in the Greek language. And the word for lust in Greek is epithemeo. You learned lust in Greek, amen. Epithemeo just means to desire for, to long for, to have an aching for, a burning for. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, which is just a letter to the church in Corinth, the author of the letter, Paul, also talks about sexual sin. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to flee from sexual immorality. This is another way to say flee from lust. Colmer says this in regards to 1 Corinthians 6. The phrase sexual immorality is porneia in Greek. And it's a junk drawer word. Paul means any and all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Everything from sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, friends with benefits, casual sex, oral sex, adultery, and prostitution to porn, raunchy movies, adult films, strip clubs, it's all porneia. So any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman is lust. That's what lust is. Anything that makes you have a desire for sex anything that makes you have an aching for sex, anything that turns you on, if it's not for your spouse, is lust. Think about it this way. When your thoughts go from affection, wow, I love them. Wow, she's beautiful. Wow, he's handsome. To arousal, so when you go from affection to arousal, which is going from wow, they're beautiful, to wow, I want to rip their shirt off. When we go from arousal to affection you know your or affection to arousal, you know you're lusting. Please recognize that arousal or lust is not, an, not attraction. It's okay to look at someone and say, wow, that's a good-looking human being. For example, Taylor is married to me, right? 
So I should be the only one who brings arousal to her. I know you feel weird. Just keep rolling with it. However, if she looks at Chris Evans and says, wow, that is a handsome man. That's okay. I agree. His arms are huge. His baby blues are handsome. I was going to say something stupid. (laughs) He's a handsome man. It's okay for her to recognize that. Attraction is different from action. You can be attracted to someone without taking action on it and thinking sexual thoughts. If you start thinking sexual thoughts about Chris Evans, then you're lusting. That's not allowed. Where are you at, Taylor? I don't want to look at her. That might be worse. So if you're just finding them beautiful for who they are instead of saying, I want to rip your shirt off, that's when you go from affection to arousal. See, I hope you find your significant other attractive. If not, that's probably not good. However, you can be attracted to someone without lusting after them. The key is when your affection starts turning to arousal, when it goes from, wow, I'm so thankful to be with them, they're beautiful, to, wow, let's get it on, you shut it down. The Bible never says, do not have sex before marriage. It starts way before that. It says, do not look at someone with lustful intent, which just means don't look at someone or have any sexual activity, including actions or thoughts, actions or thoughts about a sexual activity outside of marriage between a man or a woman. Do not lust. That's where this starts. Let's go back to Jesus' sermon that he's telling in Matthew 5. So he tells us, do not lust. He says, that is adultery. And then he tells us what to do if something causes us to lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. <laughs> Love you, Jesus. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It's better to lose your hand than to sin. This doesn't actually mean chop your hand off. It's a metaphor. So don't, if you guys start running around without a hand and yell at me, it's not my fault, okay? But what God is saying is we need to avoid sin. We need to avoid sin, especially sexual immorality, at all costs. So I want you to imagine over here, on this side of the stage, there's a cliff. Not just any cliff where it's like a straight end, but I want you to imagine it's like a triangle, right? So you walk, and as you walk towards the cliff, you get less and less land to walk on, okay? So that's on this end of the cliff. In our minds, falling off the cliff, falling off our little diving board, that's kind of what I'm thinking of, is sex outside of marriage. When we have sex outside of marriage, we've jumped off the cliff. We're off the deep end. That's what we think in America, or at least in Christian America. Or maybe like watching porn. That's jumping off the cliff. That's sin. We think those things, sex outside of marriage or watching pornography, that throws us over the edge. We think, maybe I can just get on Instagram, wand over to that Discover tab, which... I know I'll see a girl in her bikini, and then I can go on that account. They're not naked, so I'm good. Or you think, I can just look through those naughty Snapchat stories, right? Like, they're not having sex. They're not naked. They just are a little risque. So I can just kind of look at it. It's okay. I'm not falling off the edge. I'm not going to watch actual porn. I'm going to give myself a little bit. Maybe you're in a relationship, and you think, I can just spend the night with my boyfriend, right? We're good. We're not having sex. Or think, maybe we can just make out. We're like on the edge. We're like, I can handle this. I am strong. I will not fall off the cliff. You're sitting there thinking, I'm not going to have sex. I promise. 
See, what we need to realize is the edge of the cliff, falling off the cliff, is not sex. It's lust. And anything that causes you to lust is not you tiptoeing. It's you sprinting and jumping off. See, I guarantee that picture of a girl in a bikini on your Instagram is going to make you lust and turn you on. You're not looking at it saying, wow, she is so beautiful. Thank you, God, for your creation. No, you wouldn't look at it just for that. You're looking at it because it gives you a little feel that you like. I guarantee that if you make out with your boyfriend, you are going to lust after them. The point of making out is not just to make out with them. The point of making out is to turn you on and to get you ready for sex. That's why you do it. You're not just supposed to build up a lot of energy, a lot of tension, make out with them, get all excited and say, okay, bye now, time to go home. That's not the way our bodies were designed. And God's not dumb. He designed us once we start to go all the way. Now, God made the cliff lust because he knows that after we've lust, we've committed adultery in our mind, and after you engage your brain in a sexual thought, it's really hard to stop yourself. We were not designed to get really horny and then say no. That's not how God made us. As we try to get as close to the cliff as possible without jumping off, it becomes harder and harder, right? It's pointed. It's not like you can just walk freely. No, you have to keep being more careful, more careful, more careful. And then you're like dangling off the cliff and you're giving a lot of energy so you don't fall. We're not made to dangle off the cliff. We're not made to make it as hard as possible for ourselves. We're like Samson. We really want the honey inside the animal, but we don't want to touch the dead body. See, we're in a battle constantly. We want to avoid lust. If you're a Christian here, if you're a Jesus follower, you do not want to lust, hopefully. But on the other side, you really want the honey. You really want the goods. So we make excuses for ourselves that we can get a little bit of honey in ways that don't feel quite as wrong. They're not the big sins that I was told I'm not supposed to do growing up. So we try to do as much sexual stuff we can do without sinning, and we're just making it harder for ourselves. See, we like to test ourselves sometimes. I think we want to say, how strong am I? How much can I dangle off this cliff without falling? How strong can I make my one-legged person? We think that. For example, if getting on Instagram usually leads to you seeing a shirtless dude, which causes you to go scroll on the account, which causes you to have sexual thoughts about him, which causes you to watch pornography, I have an idea for you. Get rid of Instagram. Don't make it harder for yourself than you need to be. Or if you're in a relationship, and if you realize that most of the times that you cross your sexual boundaries are after 10 p.m., when you're in your room alone with the door shut, here's a crazy idea. Go, to home, go home at 9.55. Keep the door open. Hang out with other people. Don't make it harder for yourself than it has to be. We have to quit trying to prove how strong we are. We do not get brownie points for conquering our sin in the hardest way possible. We do not earn anything for dangling. No, God says run that way. Run away. You do not need to test your self-control. It's okay if you don't have self-control. None of us do. So let's be smart about things. Make life easier for yourself. Do as Jesus said to do. If something causes you to lust, cut it off. Get rid of it. Do not tempt yourself. Do as Paul said and flee sexual immorality. Paul does not say slowly walk away from sexual immorality. 
taking little tiptoes. No, he says, turn around and get your butt in gear and run away. Do whatever it takes to avoid sin. Do whatever it takes to avoid sin. Don't do whatever it takes to get as close to sinning as you possibly can without crossing some weird line that we've created in our heads of what's right and wrong. Practically, this means cut things out of your life that cause you to lust. If you're in a relationship and you guys cannot honor God with your relationship, then it's probably time to reevaluate. If you guys have boundaries that you've set, and if you're honest with yourself, they're not working, like you keep lusting and doing sexual things, then adjust your boundaries. It's perfectly okay to bring your boundaries in tighter to realize, you know what? That wasn't wise. Let's try something else. God's not mad at you for readjusting. You don't have to have some pride to say we had it figured out the first time. No. Just try to make it easier. If you're struggling with pornography, I highly encourage you to get an accountability software. Something that, for example, like Covenant Eyes is something that a lot of guys have, a lot of girls have. And if you look at something that's inappropriate on the internet, it's going to send it to people that will keep you accountable. It's an easy way to cut off the sin because you do not want me to see you looking up dirty things at midnight, right? I promise you, knowing that Pastor Derek gets an email will make you not want to watch it as much. Get this. You are not any more holy because you overcame your sin on your own without help. (laughs) When you're feeling tempted, tell someone. See, I have a group of guys that when they're struggling with sexual temptation, they text or call me. If you think, no, I'm going to get an email get you out of the mood, nothing gets you out of the mood like talking to me on the phone, right? You're like, you're feeling all sorts of ways, and you call, and I'm like, Shmello, how's it going? And instantly turned off. That's my job. I'm here to, nope, 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 nope. Mm. <sighs> Quit trying to do it on your own. That's what we're here for. We're here to help each other. We've got to stop trying to see how self-powerful and controlled can I be and said, how good is God and how much can I run away from the things he doesn't want me to do? If social media causes you to, to lust, maybe get rid of it. This is crazy. Maybe you need to get rid of your smartphone. Do whatever it takes to avoid sin. I know this sounds extreme. Hear me? I know this is crazy. I'm not sitting up here like, ha-ha, no one wants a smartphone or Instagram. Let's just eliminate all those things. They're all going to think this is great. I'm not stupid. I know that's crazy. But Jesus is clear. If our eye causes us to sin, gouge it out. I know it's hard. I know this is challenging. But you have to ask yourself, is the pain of staying the same greater than the pain of change? Do you really want to overcome your sin struggle? If you do, If you really want to overcome this sin struggle and you're willing to do whatever it takes, I promise you, I promise you, you can get over the sin. There is no sin that is too big for our God to conquer with some practical help, right? You can't say, I'm going to get over lust, God, all in the power of you, but I'm going to go to a strip club every night and force myself not to lust. That ain't going to work. You got to be smart about it too, right? But if we trust God, if we open up and we're vulnerable with people, and we're practical and smart about our sin, you can overcome any sin or sex struggle you have in your life right now. I don't care how extreme you might think it is. God is bigger than your extreme sex sin. If you're willing to do whatever it takes. So on one side of the cliff over here, we've got lust, right? That sexual sin. We talked about that. And I told you to, to run. Run away from the creation that is sex outside of the context God created to be in. So when we run, what are we running to? 
So on the other side over here, you're imagining a cliff, is the creator, Jesus. The creation is over there. The creator is here. Flee sexual immorality and run towards God. Run away from sexual sin as quickly as possible. But here's the thing. Too often we get caught up in, i got to run away from this sin. I have to overcome this sin. I have a sin issue. I'm a porn addict. I've got this struggle. And all we think about is how do I overcome this sin? How do I not fall off? When, if we turn and say, I want to be as close to Jesus as possible, I'm going to run as fast after Jesus as possible. If we do this, we're not all worried about overcoming sexual sin. We're just worried about getting closer to Jesus. And as we get closer to Jesus, we get farther away from our sin. They two do not coincide. They're on two ends of the spectrums. So instead of worrying about how can I get away from my sin, let's worry about how close to Jesus can I get. It's the only way to be safe is to trust the Creator. See, the Creator looked at Samson and said, Samson, you're special. You have a special calling. You are set apart for me. God is looking at every one of us right now and saying, you are special. God is looking at you in the same way he looked at Samson and said, I want you to be set apart for me. God wants you to be set apart for him. The creator of the universe wants to call you his son or his daughter. And God knows what's best for us. God loves us enough to give us boundaries. And it goes back to trusting. Do you trust that God is good? So we ask questions like, but what's the line? Like, I get it, but how far can I get? What's okay? How far can we go? If we don't touch the lion's body, can I still get a little bit of the honey at least? Instead of asking questions like this, we should be asking, how close to Jesus can I get? See, God wants us to be holy because he is holy. The word holy is this word kodesh in Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament. And this word just means dedicated to, special, different from the norm. We are to be holy. We are to be dedicated to God. We are to be different from people. We are to be set apart for a special relationship with God. This relationship is kind of like a marriage because I am set apart for Taylor, right? One wife. One is enough. Don't want more than that. I love you though, Taylor. So I'm set apart for her. She is mine and I am hers. And in order for me to be set apart for Taylor, I have to say no to other things. You cannot be set apart for everything. You can't be doing like the keto diet, the Daniel fast, eating only ribs, and going to McDonald's every day. It doesn't work. Those things don't all go together, right? You can only do one. But we think that when we say no to our desires, that that's a burden, that we're saying no, but that's anything but a burden. See, when Taylor and I got married, my older brother who officiated our wedding, he asked me, he said, Derek, do you commit to Taylor for life and death? For better or for worse, is she yours? Is she exclusively yours? He said, she can be your only partner. Is that okay? And I said, yes, I do. Do you think the people at our wedding were thinking, wow, what a sucker? He committed to her? He just said no to three billion other women. <laughs> were they saying, Derek's such a killjoy? He's going to love her no matter what, even when he doesn't want to? He's trapped. He lost all his freedom. No, they're not thinking that at my wedding. Because when I met Taylor and married her, I found true freedom. See, I was saying no to a lot of other things. I was saying no to other women, but I get to say yes to her every day. And that is the best yes I could ever give. Comer says this, the same is true for holiness. So as we say yes in marriage, this is the same for holiness. We have to say no to all sorts of things. But we do so in order to say yes to life with God. 
To be holy then is to be like God. That was God's intent in the beginning. We were made in God's image. We were supposed to be like God all along, but sin warped our humanness. So this is how we find freedom. We have to say no to other things. We cannot say yes to everything. So you have to say no to things that are not God, but in doing so, we get to say yes to God. And when we say yes to God, we're saying yes to living the way we were created to live. This is saying yes to trusting the smartest being in the history of the universe. We're not saying yes to an idiot, saying, dumb, dumb, come run my life. He doesn't know what he's doing. No, we're saying yes to our creator, to a creator that loves us. He's all-knowing and all-loving. We're saying yes to a God that knows best. We must trust the creator with our lives, especially our sexual lives. So why does God tell us to avoid sexual sin? Why does God tell us that sex is only healthy in the marriage between one man and one woman when those two are joined as one flesh? Why does God say this? Well, the word for one in Hebrew is this word ikad. And when you combine the word ikad with the word flesh, it means fused together at the deepest levels. So when we have sex with someone, we are fused with them. The lines blur between the two. Imagine two pieces of paper. You stick glue on one piece of paper. You stick them together, and they're fused together, right? They're not coming clean off each other. This action cannot be undone without a lot of pain. Comer tells us this. Something powerful happens in sex. Two humans become ikad. They know each other. And this action cannot be undone. It's irreversible. And to God, the only relationship strong enough to hold that kind of untamed, fierce power is marriage. That's the only container that can handle the nuclear force that we call sex. When you try to rip two pieces of paper apart, they leave some of themselves on the other piece of paper, right? Because they're fused together. This is what happens when we have sex with someone who's not our spouse. Colmer says this, the more people you sleep with, the more you start to hollow yourself. Hollow yourself out until you have little or nothing left to give away. This is why we save our sexual lives for our one spouse. We want to be able to give them our all. Our whole piece of paper belongs to them. And even if you're engaged and you think you've given them your piece of paper, until you're married, you have not. Until you've made a covenant before God, that paper is not theirs. There's still a way out. An engaged relationship is not strong enough to hold the power that is sex. Only marriage is. When you have sexual relationships with someone that is not your spouse, you leave behind some scars. And I know this all too well. So I've talked about this girlfriend that I had my senior year of high school and how we didn't honor God with our sexual boundaries. What does that practically mean, though? So this girlfriend and I, we did not have sex, but we did everything else. Having sex was my line. I'm not jumping off that cliff. That was too far. However, like I said, we did everything else, and I'm convinced that it left the same amount of me behind. It left the same amount of scars or pain or paper that having actual sex would have left because we were not doing what God designed for our sex lives. And I'll be honest with you all. I look back on that season with so much regret. I still have a lot of pain about that. I gave something to this girl that rightfully belonged to God and then belonged to Taylor. Not only that, I stole something that rightfully belonged to her future husband. Sex is theft. When you have sexual relations with someone who's not your spouse, you're stealing from their joy, stealing from their relationship with God. We think to ourselves, but I just love them so much. I love him or her, but I'm not sure if I agree that's the correct statement to make. I don't think it's that I love her. I think it's that I lust her. You don't love them too much. You lust them too much. 
Comer says this, love is about giving. Lust is about getting. Maybe you say, I need him. I need her. I have to have a physical connection with them. Maybe your love language is physical touch and you need to feel wanted. You need to feel deeply connected because they're your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiance and you want this deep physical connection. You say you need it to be healthy. Are you sure you need it or do you just want it? See, the Bible tells us to do this thing called deny ourselves. We don't get everything we want. Maybe you're trying to find your fulfillment and your happiness through this relationship instead of God. That's why you think you need the physical touch, but you don't need the physical touch. All you need is the power of King Jesus. If you're finding your fulfillment through God and not anyone else. When we have sexual relationships with someone, we're causing them to sin, right? We get that. And true love would never want to harm someone. If you truly love them, you would love them enough to care more about their relationship with Jesus than fulfilling a sexual desire in your life or feeling connected. Hear this. The question is not, do you love your significant other too much so that you fall into sexual sin? It's not that I just love them too much, that we're, just, we're too connected, we're too in love, so we do physical things that we shouldn't do because they're my future spouse. It's not, do you love them too much? The question is, do you love them enough to protect them from sexual sin? You do not love your partner too much so you fall into sexual sin. You do not love them enough because you care more about your physical connection with them rather than their spiritual connection with the creator of the universe. We often think we show love to someone when we do physical things with them, but in actuality, we're doing the opposite. Love is about sacrifice. Sacrifice your enjoyment for your relationship with God. Sacrifice your enjoyment for their relationship with God. Comer says this, the fact is, you can have a short period of pain followed by a lifetime of pleasure, or you can have a short period of pleasure followed by a lifetime of pain. Oh, that hit me. A short period of pain followed by a lifetime of pleasure, or you can have a short period of pleasure followed by a lifetime of pain. Love your significant other enough to have a short period of pain. Pre-marriage time is not that long. For some of you, you're getting married in three months. That is absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of life, and I know you're all mad at me after I say that, but make a short-term sacrifice now for a lifetime of pleasure later. Do you trust God to fulfill your desires, or do you need someone else or something else to do it? Do you need porn to fulfill your desires? Do you need a relation with someone else? See, I think a big reason why I crossed sexual boundaries in the relationship I had in high school was because I was unfulfilled in life. See, I had a God-sized hole in my heart that I tried to fill with another human being. And in doing so, not only did I hurt my relationship with God, I hurt her relationship with God, and I hurt both of our future marriages. So next time you get ready to do something sexual with someone, or next time you get ready to watch porn, do something like that, I want you to ask this question. So if you're doing it with someone else, I want you to ask, how would I feel if someone else did this with my future spouse? How would you feel if someone else did to the person that you're doing with, did that to your future spouse? Or, if you're watching porn or some other sexual sin like that, masturbation, all of those things, I want you to think, how would I feel if my future spouse was doing this right now? If the question, or the answer is angry to either question, then it's probably time to reevaluate our decision process. Because that could very well be someone else's future spouse. 
joyful tonight. Amen. Uh, this is just as fun for you as it is for me. Choose short-term pain for long-term gain. If you're addicted to pornography, not only are you lusting, which is a sin, you're also hurting your future marriage by giving yourself a disturbed view of what sex is. I'm just going to let you know. Marriage sex does not have a big plot line. There's no nice story that goes along with it. It doesn't have the frills of a movie. In the movies, you, like, pick them up and slam them against a door in the hotel and, like, rip their shirt off and you're, like, attacking them like a beast. But if you're married, you just unlock the door. You walk on in. You do not rip their shirt because if you rip their shirt, you have to buy them a new one. That's not comfortable. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if I really want to be slammed against the door. That doesn't sound thrilling. That sounds painful. But when we watch porn, we think, oh, that's sex. They're going to be like getting lassos out or something crazy. When that's not what happens, okay? Because you want to do things. You don't want to break your items, right? Like, I don't want to break our door. It's more comfortable just to, you know, like walk in the door and get it on. That's what real sex is, ladies and gentlemen. Real sex is also not building up a bunch of tension. You don't make out with your, your spouse, roll around with them, get them all excited for the main event, and then say, all right, time for bed. That is uncomfortable and not natural. We were not designed that way. So why put yourself in this kind of pain before you get married? Just wait until you can have it all. For example, you do not go to a restaurant just for the appetizers. You go to a restaurant for the main dish. You want that steak, baby. So I settle for the cheese sticks. Well, if you just wait a little bit, you're going to get a nice, fat, juicy steak. Amen? Come on. We don't go to the restaurant just for the apps, especially buy one, get one. That sounds like a really bad illustration, so we're not going to go there. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're here tonight. Ben, if you'll come up. Maybe you're here tonight, and you're feeling a lot of pain right now. Maybe you're angry with me. You don't want to tell yourself no. You don't want to feel all this guilt. You want to satisfy the natural desires in your heart. Maybe you don't think that the, the, the design that I showed for sex that God created is correct or fair. Maybe you think sex belongs in something outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And you're mad. Maybe you're not angry. But maybe you feel shame right now. Maybe your sex life looks like something outside of God's design. Maybe you have an addiction to pornography. Maybe you're doing sexual things with or lusting after someone that's not your spouse. And you're in a lot of pain right now. And you feel really guilty and you feel really dirty. I know exactly how you feel. Five years ago, I was sitting in a chair in the CAC, which is where Chi Alpha used to meet, as my big brother, our former Chi Alpha director, stood up here and gave a very similar sermon about healthy sex lives. You think it's awkward hearing it from me. Imagine it being your older brother. So I don't have a lot of sympathy because I go through that. And at the time when my brother did this, I was engaged to Taylor. And we were crossing physical boundaries. We were not honoring God at all with our sexual boundaries. We were doing things that weren't God's best for us. And if I'm honest with you, I was mad at Daniel. I was very angry at him. 
I was like, you're judging me. What are you doing? Why are you pointing out? You don't get my experience. You're married. You don't understand this. You don't understand how hard it is. I was angry. I was ashamed. I was in so much pain. And I felt so stinking dirty. Maybe you're like I was right now. And maybe you feel like my situation's hopeless. It's too hard. Maybe you think I've gone too far. I've slept with 20 people. I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've had an addiction to pornography since I was seven years old. Maybe you're thinking, my lust is too extreme. It cannot be conquered. You're thinking, I am too far gone. Maybe your identity, maybe who you are, is wrapped up in your sex life. You think, I am a porn addict. That's who I am. You think, my value is in doing sexual things with my significant other. Maybe you feel like your sexual struggles or your desires are who you are. Earlier we talked about 1 Corinthians 6. And this is when that's the verse when Paul told us to flee from sexual immorality. But he ends his little thought on lust saying this. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In the first century Corinth, which is where this letter was written to, Corinth was a hub for sex trafficking. In the middle of town, right in the town square, was a slave market where people could go buy and sell women to sleep with them. However, if you wanted to, you could go to the market, you could buy a woman, you could free her, and say, you don't have to, but will you be my bride? You can free the sex slave and say, will you be my wife? You can say, I'm sorry for the pain you've gone through. I'm sorry that you've had to be sold like a piece of property. I would like you to be in my family. I would like to clothe you. You can say, I would like to protect you. I want to provide for you. I want to love you unlike anyone else has ever loved you. I want to give you a home. I want to give you a place to be. And that's where Paul gets this statement from. Because we were bought with a price. Jesus bought us. Jesus set us free and gave us a new home. Jesus took us in our slave, in our bondage, in our bondage to our sexual sin. Jesus said, I see you're enslaved. I see you're in pain. I see you're struggling. And that will not do. I'm going to buy you. I'm going to set you free. And I'm going to offer to make you my bride. Jesus saw that we were destined for eternity in those bondages, eternity in those chains, destined to be eternally in sin. And he said, that will not do. He paid the ultimate price because, see, buying us didn't just cost him 10 bucks. Buying him cost his life. He died on a cross to cover our sins. He said, you're not perfect, but I am, so I'm going to cover your imperfections. He saw how sinful we are. And he says, I'm about to cover those sins. Comer says this, Jesus buys the shattered human who's known nothing but the pain of rape, prostitution, and shame, and he calls her his bride. He makes her into something beautiful. That is our identity. Our identity is not our sexual sins. You are not too far gone. Your bondages are not too heavy for the God of the universe to break them. Our identity is you are a son or a daughter of Jesus. You're God's chosen one. You're the apple of God's eye. But until we trust the creator over his creation, that is sex, we'll never find freedom. 
We can't break it on our own. We need the, the God who has the key to come and unlock us. God knows better than you and I do in regards to our sexuality. And if we trust that God knows best, even if that means denying myself, even if that goes against my natural desires, my natural attractions, even if I have to say no to myself, if we trust that God knows best, we will find freedom and we will find a new identity. If you would all stand with me. See, Jesus wants to take our dirty rags and he wants to make them into something beautiful. Jesus wants to cleanse us from all lust. Jesus wants to make us his bride and wash us as white as snow. He wants to take our dirty, filthy, red, blood-covered clothes and take them off and give us a piece of white cloth and say, you're clean in my name. Jesus wants to make our slate clean. So if you're here and you feel guilt, if you feel shame or a burden, if you just feel dirty right now, Jesus wants to wash over you and cleanse you right now. Jesus wants to cleanse you. But hear this, when Jesus cleanses you, he does not want you to go roll around in the dirt again. When Jesus cleanses us, he wants us to change. Jesus does not cleanse us to just go get dirty again. No, when Jesus cleanses us, he provides us a new way. He says, your way doesn't work. Let's try my way. He says, I will show you how to be holy. I will show you how to be like me. Jesus says, I know you're happier when you're clean. You're not happy when you're dirty. You're not happy when you're rolling around with pigs. So come be with me and take the clean, the good, the pure way. Jesus knows that if we cut off our sin, if we flee sexual immorality, we'll have a lot less pain. If our staff team would come up. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine a life where you don't feel shame when you talk about sex. I want you to imagine a life when you're not addicted to pornography. Imagine you're honoring God with your relationship. Imagine you having nothing to hide. Sounds pretty freeing, right? Let Jesus free you tonight. I have two questions for us tonight. The first question is this. If everyone closed their eyes and bowed their heads, if you're here tonight and you have, if you're honest with yourself, you haven't been following Jesus at all. He hasn't cleansed you from any of your sins, not just sex sins, but any sin. And you want to change that tonight. And you want to give your life to Jesus and say, God, be my king. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and say, God, I'm all in. I'm going to count to three. And if that's you, raise your hand as a sign to Jesus that you're all in. One, two, three. Thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, we love you so much. Jesus, I pray for my new brothers and sisters in the kingdom. God, I just pray. I thank you that you wash us of our sins. Jesus, I thank you. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. Now, our second response I want to do is a little different, right? So we're going to play this song soft. And if you are honest with yourself, and there's some bondages that need broken, if there's some accountability that needs to be had, if you need to have some conversations, we're going to create an environment for you to do that. So we'll have our staff team up front. You could go find your small group leader. But don't just let what's happening inside of you stay inside of you. Go talk to someone about it. So as we sing this song, no one's looking around, the lights will be down. I challenge you to go ask for forgiveness and go confess to your community so you can find freedom. Amen? I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we love you so much. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for giving us a way out. Thank you for cleansing us, God. Thank you for taking the slave that is us and making us your bride. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen.
Amen.